Good morning. I mean, I guess saying good morning is just habit. It really is just morning. It might even have a U in there. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, you know, I've continued to recover over this last week from whatever this energy-sucking cold thing is that's going around. Uh, and uh, as I was working on the sermon this week, on the seven bowls of God's wrath and judgment, uh, on Tuesday, my external monitor started getting all wiggy, uh, and it stopped working on me. And uh, it's just so much easier to look at, you know, the the Bible text and my sermon notes and slides all kind of laid out on on one screen, and, and it just died. And I came down here and, and plugged into the church, and that setup was working, so I thought, ah, it's, a, it's a cable. So I ordered a, a replacement cable and uh, just kept working at home on the small screen. And then on Friday morning, I was working at home on the small screen, and I was working specifically on the seventh bowl of judgment, and the computer just died. I'm typing along one minute, and the next second, it's, the screen's just black. So I spent a couple hours working with Apple support and researching, uh, you know, what potential issues could be, and the Apple support couldn't get it back up and working again. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's a direct correlation between the months of difficulties uh, and stresses and issues that we have all faced, uh, and, uh, you know, a correlation between that and the study of Revelation. Uh, I'm just saying that I finished this week's sermon notes in cursive, uh, and the slides really came from an old Etch-a-Sketch. Um, so <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how all this is going to work together. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, so as promised today, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at chapter 16 and the, the seven plagues that accompany the bowls of God's wrath. Uh, and last week, chapter 15, gave us a bit of a break, really, from the the heaviness of the judgment cycles, John described the scene for us, this vision in heaven where the redeemed, uh, those gathered around the throne, the believers of all ages, the 144,000 that represent the believers of all ages, they were gathered around the throne and, and they played instruments and they sang a song, which is what we read earlier. It was the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And it speaks to the majesty of God on his throne. But it also has a bit of an ominous undertone to it um, it says, who will not fear and glorify your name? And then it says, all nations will come and worship you. All nations will come and worship you. But we know, as, we, as we've been reading through the seals and the trumpets, that's not the case so far. We keep being told over and over and over that people wouldn't repent. They wouldn't repent of their sin. They wouldn't accept Jesus. They wouldn't accept uh, uh, acknowledge the God of creation. So that the cycles of judgment, all these warnings... They continue. But the song says, one day, all nations will come to worship you. And we are moving closer to that day. So let's pray before we jump into the rest of this. Father God, we're, we're grateful for this text that you've given us. And it has been challenging and it has been thought-provoking. And, and we've probably heard any number of things that uh, maybe we hadn't thought about before. Um, it probably contradicts some things that we've heard. Um, or is at least a, a, a different explanation to some of these things. Uh, and, and I pray that you just continue to keep our hearts and our minds open as we go through, that we, that we see the, um, the words that you have for us, that we're not uh, swayed by teachings and opinions of others, even well-respected and, and well-known 
teachers. Lord, I pray that you help us see what you have for us in this text, um, that you help us see clearly what you have called us to do, how you called us to continue to persevere and endure and, and even share the gospel with others as we go through this and see the judgments that are coming. So help us hear what you have for us this morning. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last line of the Song of Moses, the last line of the Song of the Lamb said, Your righteous acts have been revealed. So this song serves to, uh, to remind us, it serves as a reminder that God has been faithful through all generations. That his ways, although they are inexplicable to us at times, his ways are always just and true, that his acts by definition, his acts are righteous. And we need this reminder, I think, as we go through this, so that when we get to these harsh and severe judgments to come, we can rest assured that God has been more than fair with his creation. We're reminded that God has been more than generous. He's more than kind. He's more than merciful. God has been more than patient. But his patience will come to an end. We talked about how the golden bowls of wrath introduced in chapter 15, that they seem to be very similar to the golden bowls of incense from chapter 5. And the the bowls of incense, we were told, represented the prayers of the saints. And the saints cried out, those gathered under the altar cried out, how long? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on the earth dwellers? And the answer then, the answer they got then was, not until the number of your fellow servants should be complete. So the persecution of the saints is going to go on until the Lord says enough. But that enough works for the earth dwellers too. It actually works against them in the long run. The Lord is allowing them time to come to faith. Even as they continue to do evil on the earth, he allows them time to come to faith. And and this has gone this way. This has been God's pattern from the beginning. In Genesis, you remember God makes the great covenant with Abraham. But first, he told Abraham, there's going to be 400 years of suffering. Your people are going to be strangers in a strange land. They're going to be enslaved. But then, the Lord said, the sin of the Amorites would be complete. There will come a time when it's enough. And then God is going to act on behalf of Abraham. Joshua, you remember, was was able to defeat the Canaanites only after their sin had reached its full measure. When the Lord said, enough. That's the exact same picture we're seeing here. As Christ followers from all ages, we are strangers living in a strange land. We face persecution and we're gonna, we face turmoil and we're going to face increasing suffering, I think. But, but God continues to sustain us, to empower us. He indwells, he indwells us and he allows us to persevere and endure. But there will come a time when his patience and his long-suffering comes to an end when the Lord declares, enough. His wrath will be pronounced. When the bowls of his wrath are poured out for the last time, that's the picture that we see in chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. 
Well, they just jump right in there, don't they? <clears throat> well, the first thing, you know, whenever we hear there's a loud voice from heaven, we can always assume this is the Lord speaking. Whether it's his voice, it's a, it's a messenger, the message is the Lord's. And this loud voice essentially says, enough. Now's the time. Go out and pour on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, I think it's interesting to point out here that as we go through these seven judgments, that the word plague only appears in describing the fourth and the seventh. Even though they were all clearly introduced as plagues in the last chapter, the word plague only shows up here twice in these judgments. And I think it's because the focus and the emphasis here is on God's wrath. It's not the actual events, it's on God's wrath. Because these are not the the punishments or the judgments of an arbitrary or capricious God. These judgments, all these things we're going to read about, they are severe and they are harsh, but they are judgments that are earned. These are the fruits of the labors of the earth dwellers. It's hard to hear. It's hard to think about. So the first bowl is poured out, and it resulted in harmful and painful sores. And we're told that these harmful and painful sores only afflict the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The sores only afflict the unbelievers. Which seems to indicate that there must still be believers around at this time, or does it really make any sense to make this distinction? I mean, why tell us it only afflicts the unbelievers if there are only unbelievers left? Now, there are different versions. There are different timetables and, and different timelines for when folks think this rapture occurs. But this verse, I think, poses a challenge for the really heavy pre-trib or pre-wrath crowd because believers on the earth, believers are on the earth when this final bold judgment period starts. And they're saved from this particular judgment of sores. Now next up is, is bowl number two. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and the sea became like the blood of a corpse. We can kind of imagine that's, you know, thick and congealed and gooey and probably a little bit stinky and just not quite like the blood that's coursing through our veins right now. So, of course, if the blood turns to sea, everything in the sea dies. They can't, they can't live on that, so it, it kills all the sea creatures. Well, then the third angel poured out his blood into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So now this is the freshwater supply, and presumably everything living in the freshwaters also dies. It doesn't say that specifically, but they'd have to. And now all the earth's water is gone. It's unusable. All of the aquatic life dead. So not only is drinking water a big issue, but there are clearly larger economic issues involved here as well. The whole water-based food supply is gone. No more fish tacos. All the global industries that that depend on water-based activities, fishing, fish farming, you know, anything that we get from the sea, it's all gone. Charlie the Tuna, gone. And this is going to cause massive economic turmoil around the world. Now, we've talked already about how the seal and the trumpet judgments are similar in nature. We think these are different explanations or perspectives on the same kinds of events. 
There are differences in the details, to be sure, like in the severity of the judgment. One says, you know, a fourth of the earth was impacted, and the other one says a third of the earth. But there are strong similarities. We've also mentioned a time or two the similarities between the seal and the trumpet and now the bold judgments and the plagues that God brought to bear on Egypt. It's a really interesting study if you want to spend some time looking at this. We're going to look at this for just a minute. You'll see that now we're in the bowls and it affects the land. Sores on people. In the trumpets, it affected the land. A third of the earth, trees, grass were all burned up. There was hail and fire. And in the plagues on Egypt, the sixth plague was dust and boils, sores. The second bowl affects the sea. The water was turned to blood. The second trumpet was a third of the sea turns to blood. A third of the creatures die, ships destroyed. The first plague in Egypt was the Nile was turned to blood. We're seeing there's some really strong correlations here between how God dealt with disobedience then and how he's dealing with disobedience now. Fresh water is affected. In the trumpets, wormwood was introduced and a third of the waters were poisoned. Still correlates to the Nile turning to blood. Now, some difference in some of the details, a difference in order even, but we can't deny there are similarities with God's consistency in his judgment. And I don't think this is coincidental If you remember the pattern in Egypt, as the Lord's spokesperson, Moses presented his argument to Pharaoh as to who God was. He is the God of the Israelites. He is the God. The Israelites, they're they're God's chosen people. And God wants you, Pharaoh. He instructs you to recognize his sovereignty and let his people go. Pharaoh refused. He refused again and again. And the plagues were used. The plagues were introduced to show the power and the might of Jehovah God, and it allowed time for Pharaoh to see the evidence, to see God's work, to be swayed, to be convinced that this was the true God. And we remember then that some of the plagues affected only parts of the country. The parts where the Israelites didn't live, for example. They were spared some of these plagues. Not unlike here, and how the believers on the earth are not impacted by the sores and the boils. So the theme of judgment, the the theme of earned judgment, continues. It's consistent throughout history. And it has tended to be proportional, and in some cases very specific. Now there are lots of similarities between the trumpets and bowls, and we're going to see more of these as we go through. Let's move to the next couple of verses. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, I mentioned last week that I think there is a a distinction made between the introduction of the plagues and the introduction of the bowls. It's, it's described as a, as a two-step process. We were told the angels emerged from the tent of witness with the plagues, and then they were given the golden bowls. Now, my theory about that, my very limited insight, which would totally be wrong, was something like, I think the two are presented separately so that we can focus on one or talk about one of those things without having to necessarily deal with the other. They are connected, they function together, but they are treated separately. Functionally, the plagues and the bulls are connected, but their purpose is different. The plagues are the actual physical effects, the sores, the water to blood. And the bulls, we are told, represent God's wrath. They're they're the reasons for, the justification for the plagues. 
And I think this section, this text, lends credence to the argument. We were just told about the effects of the first three judgments. We're told what happens with the plagues themselves. And then the focus shifts here to the justification for those. We were reminded, after these horrible things happen, the angel in charge of the waters, the, the, the one who just bloodied the waters probably, this angel says, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. So the angel is making it clear that everything that has happened, everything that is happening, everything that's going to happen, it's all the result of God's judgment. And he addresses the Lord as the Holy One. The Holy One, you brought these judgments. And even before that, he introduces it with just are you. Now the word translated just is always translated as either just or righteous. Every time. Just and righteous are you, O Holy One. Meaning that God's judgment is always right. Whatever the, whatever the decision, whatever the penalty, whatever the judgment, it is always deserved. But almost as though, I think, to help us understand the harshness of the judgments that are being laid out, we're given a little more information. The angel says, For they, those who are being afflicted, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. So he's telling us they've earned this judgment. This is kind of an eye for an eye kind of punishment. They've shed the blood of the saints. You've given them blood to drink. We've already been told, I think, several times and in several ways about how the dragon and the beasts and their followers are going to do their best to wipe out the church. And this is not just an end times thing. I mean, Martyrdom and persecution is a well-established and documented part of church history. It's gone on from the beginning. But we read this as though it's going to become particularly significant as the end draw near, as the, as the dragon gains authority. And the participants of evil, all the followers of the dragon and the beast, they're going to feel like they have the upper hand as they kill the two witnesses, for example, which we read about just a few weeks ago. So the evildoers have delighted in shedding the blood of the saints. God's justice is to force them to drink blood. The blood of his wrath. And again, it shows us God's consistency. We see this introduced way back even in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, 26 says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So we see this kind of twofold effect here of judgment. Punishment for the oppressors of God's people. But it's also designed to help them see that he is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. Only an omniscient, almighty God could bring about this kind of punishment. This kind of judgment. So the angel makes this declaration about the just and righteous judgments brought against the earth dwellers. He's declaring it's what they deserve And then John heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, we're not told this specifically here, but generally speaking, I think it's true that altars themselves do not speak. So I don't think John's talking about a physical altar here. So I think what we're meant to understand is that John is talking about the souls of the saints who have been described as being gathered under the altar. 
They were first mentioned in, in chapter 6, verse 9. Those saints who cried out, How long, Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now it's done. Now it's beginning to occur anyway. And, and they rejoice. They declare that God is just and true. Finally. Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So the fourth bowl affects the sun. It causes heat from the sun to intensify, apparently. Uh, to the point of scorching people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. To me, this seems like a particularly disturbing kind of judgment. One of my least preferred ways to die would be to die from fire. Or sharks. Those are my top two. <laughs> this just sounds horrific. But we were just told that these judgments are just. And then it's kind of, a, I think, a big old explanation point on this to remind us of the true and just God. This verse says they experienced these, this, this horrible burning and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. Rather than think through their particular situation, rather than repent and acknowledge his power over the dragon and the beast and the physical properties of creation... Rather than beg for mercy even, they cursed God. They did not repent, and they did not give him glory. If you take another quick look at our, at our chart here, you see four affects the sun and heat. In the trumpets, it affects the sun, moon, and stars. They turn dark. And in the plagues, the ninth brings about darkness. So this is kind of the opposite of those. It affects the same physical properties, but we get the opposite effect of them. So it's still related in its scope, just a different outcome. And then the fifth bowl we're going to see does result in darkness. And this affects the throne of the beast and the sun. In the trumpet, the abyss is open. It's, it results in darkness and locusts. And eighth and ninth plagues are darkness and locusts. So we're seeing this, this thematic theme continue through. So the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And I, for me, anyway, this begs the question, are we talking about a literal throne? Is there an actual physical location? That's the image we get of this bowl being poured out. Or is it a figurative throne? Is, are, are we talking about this? the effects of this really affecting the, the reign and the power of the beast? You may remember back from the seven letters to the seven churches... Pergamum was mentioned as the city in which Satan's throne was located. So is that what's at play here? Well, I don't think so. I, I suspect that if Pergamum was the location, it was the actual city in question here, it would have said that. Pergamum was symbolically called the throne of Satan due to its overabundance of pagan temples. It was a center of emperor worship. All kinds of worship was tolerated and, and encouraged and venerated in Pergamum. Everything except probably the Christian worship of Jesus, that wasn't tolerated so much. 
So I think the throne of the beast that's mentioned here is more likely a reference to the center of power. Uh, It's it's a, a reference to the world system that is behind all of the things at work here. Wherever and whatever that happens to be at the time this occurs. But it's the center of power. It's the center of oppressive governments. The center of world leaders. It's the center of false teaching that is, has deluded and is deluding so many people into worshiping an antichrist. I think that's the, that's the city, that's the throne that, that is at play here. And I think it's probably why this, this uh, influence of false teaching may be why the judgment here is darkness. They're being convinced they're following light, and it's really leading them into darkness. The dragon and his beasts have, have controlled people through lies and deception, effectively leading them into spiritual darkness. They just don't know it. So the curse here, the plague here, the Lord makes it clear to them. They're living in darkness, and darkness is the curse. And still, people did not repent of their deeds. They didn't connect the dots. They, 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 they weren't able to see the bigger picture that was at play here. Instead, it says, they gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. Now, it, it seems to me this is almost kind of stunning, really, to think that hatred and animosity towards anyone or anything could become so pronounced, so deep, that we act against our own self-interest even to remain invested in our hate. Even though people seem to acknowledge on one hand that God is causing these afflictions, they seem to know that they could do something themselves that could bring it to an end. A simple act of repentance, for example, would end their misery and judgment. It made the haters hate God even more. And as difficult as this has been to understand for most of us, in previous times anyway, in the last couple of years, we can start to see how this can happen. We can start to see how these, these divisions occurred. I mean, our, our political system, for one, has become so divided, I'm not even sure it's, it's issue-oriented any longer. It's emotional. It's hateful. We hate the other side just because they're the other side. I don't care what their idea is. It's become this this vengeful tit-for-tat kind of thing, and and both sides just continue to drag their heels even more. And we can begin to see how this kind of mindset can develop. When people become so invested in themselves, so invested in their pursuits, that they actually start to go against what is best for them. They'd rather suffer in darkness and gnaw their tongues than admit that Jesus was right. They'd rather gnaw their tongues and suffer in darkness than admit that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The fourth angel. Oh, wait, I just did that one. There. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming, from, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Well, finally, we're getting to the good stuff here. So this sixth bowl obviously takes a bit of a turn. It, it, it combines uh, judgment or judgments, really, along with the information about battle preparation. It gives us a, a hint as to what is to come. Now, first of all, it says that the Euphrates, Euphrates River is dried up, um, which by now is likely, you know, blood anyway, so they don't really lose anything, drinking water or, or food supply or anything else. But the reason it says it's dried up is to pre- prepare the way for the kings of the east. So, let me just say here, this kings of the east phrase, this, this crossing the Euphrates from the kings of the east, this is another one of those verses where people have spent endless speculation about who and what these kings from the east represent. I mean, clearly it has to be Iraq or Russia, or Jordan, or China, or pretty much anything that's north and east. It could be, it could be any of those. They're all possibilities. Now, historically, the, the area around the Euphrates served as kind of a buffer zone, uh, a marker of sorts, with the kingdoms north and east of Israel and Judah. It served as kind of a safety zone for them. You can see right here, here's Israel, Euphrates is up here, so there was this kind of big buffer zone that kept all of these people out, kind of. Because there were some, some bad neighbors up here, the Assyrians, the, the Babylonians, the Sumerians. They all had to come across the Euphrates to get over into Israel's territory. They were persistent enemies of Israel. They were conquerors on several occasions. And the Euphrates would have provided some kind of protection from an army attack, it would have at least slowed them down when waters were high. And I think that's likely the reference here when they're talking about kings from the east It would have represented this historical threat against Israel. But can we conclude from this Revelation text that what is now modern-day Syria and Iraq, Saudi Arabia, can we conclude that those are the intended kings from the east who are preparing to mount an assault? I don't think so. I don't think that's right. I think the kings from the east are being used here as as archetypes, as examples or or metaphors. Just as Assyria and Babylon have been historical enemies of Israel, we know that the dragon and the beast have been historical enemies of God. It's the dragon and the beast who are going to rally the armies together to fight. And it's going to include a lot of people, as we're going to see in the chapters to come. And the text goes on to say that from the mouths of the dragon and the beast come three unclean spirits like frogs. Ephrates, Euphrates, demon frogs. Here, four angels were released at Euphrates. A third of the earth was killed. And the second plague was frogs from the, from the Nile, and the magicians performed their magic arts. Now, the frogs, I think, are obviously a symbolic tie to the second Egyptian plague. But here, the frogs, we're told, are demonic spirits. They perform signs. They perform wonders. Another way of saying that they're they're false teachers. They're spreading lies and deceit. They're deceiving people. They're seducing people into falsehood, into following the dragon and the beasts. And they're very effective at it. They're very good at it. 
They're sent out to influence the kings of the whole world. So it's not just the kings from the east that we have to worry about. They're going to influence the kings of the whole world. Government leaders the world over. Again, we're, we're seeing this pattern of how coercive authoritarian government leaders coupled with false teaching, false religion, those are the key components of Satan's strategy here. I think this also tells us that we probably shouldn't spend a lot of time trying to decipher who the three kings of the East are. Because all of the world's kings are going to be involved. And they're going to be involved in what? They're going to be involved in assembling their, bat- their armies for battle. A symbol for battle against God the Almighty. And this is the big battle that's referred to as Armageddon. This is the actual war to end all wars. The battle of Gog and Magog, verse 16 spells it out. This is Armageddon. Now just to give you a little sneak peek here of what's to come, John is going to go on after this and give us twin visions of this battle. The first one shows the outcome for the beast, uh, the false prophet, and their followers. The second vision will show us the outcome for the dragon. It's, it's one battle, but we're given these multiple visions, much like the rest of the pattern in, in Revelation, and it's going to show us these different outcomes for the participants. Those are chapters 19 and 20 when we get there. So these, these forces of the world, they're being influenced by the demonic frog spirits, by the, the demonic spirits from the dragon and the beast. They're going to wage war against God. They're going to wage war against Christ. They're going to wage war against this church. And in a pattern that we've seen over and over and over now, right in the middle of this heavy, heavy text, lest we become disturbed by all this information, bothered by the imagery, lest we feel overwhelmed and anxious by these troubling visions, we have this parenthetical section inserted here. Literally, in parentheses, it says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the man who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So in the middle of this darkness and and heaviness, Jesus gives us a blessing. I mean, it's a weird blessing, you know, kind of. Hey, war is afoot. Don't be naked. But this is a moment provided to calm us, to, to soothe us, to provide comfort and security. A lot more could be said about this in the imagery involved, but the short explanation for this is I think God is saying, blessed is the one who continues to persevere. Things are going to look dark. Things are going to look heavy. Blessed is the one who perseveres, who endures. Blessed is the one who continues to walk in a worthy manner, who keeps his garments on, who keeps his garment pure. That's all language and symbolism we've seen all the way through. And that message has been consistent from the very first chapter. This is meant to reassure us. In the middle of all this darkness, it reassures us, it tells us that this is going to look bleak, but God's got this. Jesus is going to win this battle. He calls us to endure and and persevere in the faith. He calls us to continue to preach the gospel to the lost, to give them a chance to say yes or no. And we have a role to play in the final fight, but the, the end shot is the Holy Trinity is going to soundly and roundly defeat the unholy trinity forever that's a spoiler alert if you have not read read ahead yet that's how this ends 
but we're called to be faithful and endure through all of this. And now, following the, the reference to this big upcoming battle, we get to the seventh bowl. This is where computers die. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine and the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So the seventh angel was told, poured out his bowl into the air. Now, all of the other bowls, you remember, they, or the associated plagues, they had very specific targets. They were poured on the land or the sea, Euphrates. But this one says just into the air. There's this very broad kind of general location because it's going to affect everything. Everything is going to be impacted by this. As soon as the bowl had been emptied, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne itself. This is the voice of the Lord again saying, it is done. Now, that word done is a different Greek word than when we read, it is finished, but the idea is pretty much the same. This is the end. There are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake. We've seen this description before as it has concluded all of the seal cycles, the the trumpet cycles, they've all ended with this picture of the end. They've all ended with lightning, rumbling, thunder, and an earthquake. So again, we think this adds to our argument that the seals, the bulls, trumpets are all telling the same story, but from different perspectives. They've been repeating throughout history, but there will come a time when the cycle comes to an end. This is that time. It says the earthquake that's described is such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So previous earthquakes, and we've had some humdingers, previous earthquakes have all been warnings, precursors, hints of what is to come, this great event. This is the quake to end all quakes. In fact, it's so great, it says that the great city was split into three parts. Now, there's a lot of diversity of thought as to the identity of the great city that's mentioned here. Some believe it refers to Jerusalem, the site of the Lord's crucifixion. Some believe it refers to Rome, which would have made total sense in John's day when the first hearers read this. They probably would have thought this referred to Rome. But because this is more general in nature, I think the explanation is more general in nature also. The seventh bowl is poured into the air, not on the great city. So I don't think it's a specific particular city. And then there's immediately the reference to the great city, but then it says that all cities of the nations fell. So again, this represents the, the large cities, which gets even more specific when it mentions Babylon specifically. Babylon becomes the representative city of, destru- of destruction. Eh, again, I could be wrong here, of course, but this great city really represents, I think, all the great cities of the earth. More than that, I think the reference to the great city really represents the whole world system, the the seduction of the world system. It represents the the wealth and the power and the success that seems to congregate in big cities around the world. The, The seats of power, the seats of privilege, money. And many are lured, many are seduced into the excesses of material comfort and at the expense of spiritual and eternal rest. 
I just saw a poll the other day that interviewed pastors in the U.S., and they said, what do you think the number one idol is for people in your congregations? And the overwhelming answer, 60-some percent said they thought the number one idol was comfort. We've gotten comfortable. We like our stuff. We like our whatever measure of wealth we have. It's a constant battle for us. That's part of the lure of the great cities. You can have all of this stuff. Back in chapter 11, we read about the death of the two witnesses. And it said, When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So here, the great city, we're told, is symbolic. It represents these other places. Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem. The symbolism from chapter 11, I think, is still at play here. It's in keeping with the general idea of the end of the world as we know it. The bowl is poured into the air in a very general way. All the great cities are affected. All the great cities are wiped out. But specifically, this mentions Babylon the Great. She's the main symbol. She becomes, as we move forward through the text... She becomes the poster child for having sold out and worshipped materialism and excess. In the next couple chapters, Babylon's mentioned four more times. Next, in chapter 17, she's listed as Babylon the Great, the great city, perhaps. And she's described as the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. So Babylon begins to encompass, to represent all of the enticements and the, and the seductions offered by the dragon and the beasts and embraced by so many. Now, we're not told here really the exact significance of the city being split into three parts. We don't really know what that means. Perhaps it's just to, to give us an idea, an image as to how extensive the earthquake was. I mean, we've all seen photos of, uh, of the aftermath of earthquakes in big cities. But none of us have ever seen a, a city that's split into three pieces. This is significant. I think this just gives us an idea of the severity of this. But in this final destruction, God has his eye on Babylon the Great. And we'll learn more about Babylon over the next few chapters. More background is going to be filled in. But here we're told that Babylon is in focus as the extent of God's wrath is revealed. He has, it says, he has remembered Babylon the Great. He's remembered the centuries of great evil. He's remembered how Babylon and her followers, the earth dwellers, have continually rejected him. He's remembered how they've continually and actively rebelled against him. He's remembered how what Babylon represents, how they've persecuted and martyred the saints. So this remembering, God remembers all the evils that have been perpetrated by Babylon and, and the spirit of evil from the dragon and the beast how they've done all of these things against the saints, and so he's also remembering the martyred souls under the altar. Those who've been crying out, how long, Lord? And his judgment is finally here. He's going to make Babylon drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, meaning they get all of God's wrath. Every last drop is poured out. Every ounce of Judgment and justice is going to be applied. This earthquake is so great that every island fled away, every mountain disappeared from existence. The destruction even included 100-pound hailstones. And it says they fell from heaven. Just to remind us, this is a judgment from God. It's coming from heaven. 
And these enormous hailstones fell on people. And we see one last comparison here. The seventh bowl affects everything. Earthquake, lightning, and hail. Trumpets, earthquake, lightning, and hail. The seventh plague, lightning, and hail. God's judgment has been consistent. He's warned us for centuries what's going to happen. And still, still, people at this point, rather than recognize the power and sovereignty of Almighty God, rather than admit maybe they've had it wrong, rather than admit maybe their lives have been a little too selfish, maybe a little too, a little too narcissistic, that they've been lied to and deceived, the people cursed God for the plague of hail because it was so severe. So they acknowledge that God's behind it. They just can't bring themselves to worship him. This day is coming. It's not yet here. It may be close, but it may, may not be. But there will come a time when the Father's patience comes to an end. There'll come a moment when the time of the Amorites is complete, when the wicked, wickedness of the generations is fulfilled. There'll come a time when God's offer of grace and mercy expires. And we see the picture here that, that even as he's pouring out his judgment, there is still time for people to repent. Why does this tell us that people refuse to repent if they don't have an option? Even as we're going through these judgments, even as God is pouring out his wrath, he's willing to allow people time to repent. But they don't. Most don't. Maybe some will, but most don't. Now, for believers, we're told that we're going to be spared from at least some of these plagues. We're not sure completely, timeline for all this. We're saved from the sores, we know. But we continue to persevere and endure. We continue to live because we have an eternal hope to look forward to. Regardless of how dark and heavy it is, we have an eternal hope to look forward to. And that helps us persevere. But we're also called, while we're here, to be concerned, to be worried, to think about our friends and family who are not believers. We don't want people we know and love going through any of this stuff. Not without the hope for the end of it anyway. So part of our persevering, part of our keeping our garments on, keeping them clean, we're trying to maintain our own holiness, but we're also called to share the gospel with other people. I suspect most of us could do a little better at that. I mean, it's pretty easy for us to get caught up in our own busy lives and extended families. It's pretty easy to get focused on work days and, and plans for the next day or the next month or whatever. Admittedly, it takes zero effort and zero thought to not share the gospel with someone. We can go days, weeks without ever thinking about it. And yet, one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples was go, teach, make disciples. Part of why I'm leaving you here. Baptize them. Save them from the eternal judgment that's going to come. So after reading all this and feeling the weight of all this, I would just encourage us, all of us, to try to keep that in mind as we go through this week. There's a pandemic of hopelessness and despair out there. And we have the antidote. We have the good news of the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. And it's our job to share that. One last kind of word of caution, though, I guess. However you go about 
sharing the good news with others. I mean, I always prefer the kind of person-to-person, you know, face-to-face kind of approach. But whatever option you may choose, pray about who you're going to talk to, pray about the approach, you know, listen to the voice of the Spirit, and then try to do spell check before you go out. You see, baptize is misspelled. You get that? Yeah. Our gospel is, a, is a, offensive enough without looking like bad spellers. I'll put it tactfully. All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we're grateful for the challenge of this text. It is, it is easy to be overwhelmed, to feel a, a sense of heaviness by all that's going to occur. Um, even when we know that your ways, your judgments are, are just and true and righteous. It's difficult to hear these things. It's difficult for us to think about our friends and family and and neighbors and coworkers who may have to go through these very things. So, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, embolden us. Help us see those people around us who are in need. There's so many who are struggling. The the statistics are overwhelming at, at the sense of isolation and the sense of despair and so many things coming out of the pandemic. I mean, it was bad before, but the lockdowns have just made everything worse. So, Lord, I, I pray that you help us keep our our hearts and our, our ears, our eyes open to who is in need. Help us figure out ways to engage in conversation. Help us listen to the voice of the Spirit as he will lead us through these discussions and, and give us the words that we need to say. Lord, I pray that you give us a, a willingness and a heart for the people around us. We thank you for giving us this information, as difficult as it is to hear. Lord, you, you tell us what's, what's coming. You tell us how to prepare. And I pray that we really find ways to apply that in our lives also. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.